0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the Fugazi catalog. From Fuga-A to Fugazi. i I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Facet Squared from 1993's In on the Killtaker is John Davis of the band's Q and Not You, Georgie James and Title Tracks, and who works as a performing arts archivist at the University of Maryland. John, how's it going? Uh, it's great. Thank you for having me on your show here. Absolutely. Thanks very much for being on. Um, we talked with uh, your Erstwhile bandmate Chris Richards uh, mm-hmm. on one of the early episodes of the show, and you know, fans love it. I think they'll be glad to hear from you. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll make it a hat trick with you, Q, and not you guys. Um, <laughs> sure. I don't. I don't think I ever actually met you in person before. I'm not sure though. Um, I used to back when I lived in D.C. I I played a lot of shows like with Laura Byrne before you started collaborating with her. So I wouldn't be surprised if we were in the same room at some point. um, Yeah, I'm sure. Something like that. Um, But yeah, so do you want to start off by um, just telling me a little about your relationship with Fugazi as a fan, a fellow musician, as a label mate, uh, how you first got into them and got to know them?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say and and I'll I'll try to keep it as short as I can. But, um, you know, I first heard the band as, um, as a teenager, I think I was maybe 14 or 15 years old at the, at the time when I first heard them and just, you know, friends of mine in school, um, you know, were passing around mixtapes and I knew that they were a band that people were, you know, really excited by. This was sort of after, uh, Repeater and, um, and the three song single and, and the first two EPs, that stuff was all out at that point. And, you know, Fugazi in the DC area was already, you know, this really like Titanic thing that, you know, people were just really excited about and moved by and inspired by. And so I was hearing about it. And um, the summer of 1991 was kind of like a big turning point for me as a person. And musically, um, I had that was sort of the beginning of me really exploring punk music and indie rock and alternative and whatever for the first time, you know, I started going to record stores that summer and, you know, buying like Sonic Youth and Firehose and, you know, SST type stuff. Um, That was kind of all new to me at that point. And, um, And I think I was just starting to read you know music newspapers and had friends telling me and just kind of got into it that way and heard about Fugazi and I went and bought a uh, steady diet of nothing had very recently come out and it was on sale at Tower Records for like something what seemed like totally crazy it was like 7.99 <laughs> or something like that and uh, I was used to you know paying more than twice that for CDs and and it was uh it was in like a like a blister pack one of like the plastic long boxes And um, I was just like, well, $7.99, you know, you can't really go wrong. (laughs) You can't afford um, not to buy that. I bought that album and I bought uh, the Metallica Enter Sandman CD single and Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic record all on the same day at Tower (laughs) Records in Rockville, Maryland. And uh, went home and, and, you know... uh, Seti Diet is, you know, is, is kind of a weird record in, in, in their whole, in their chronology, I guess, but, uh, or in their discography. Um, and it was, it was, I was a little slow to warm to it, but, um, but it made an impact quickly. And then I just really completely got into the band very deeply over the next six months. And then I went with some friends to go see them live in, uh, April of 1992. I think it was April 4th, 1992. I saw them, uh, Play with l seven and Bikini Kill at sanctuary theater in washington d c and that was my first punk show Wow and, that's a you know, huge bill, c- certainly one of the best i've ever seen and um very life changing i mean you know I've, I just go walking into that building it was such a an, an amazing mix of, um, it was a f- of fear. Like I was very afraid <laughs> and, um, it was very warm and it's just smelled like humanity. And it was, um, there was so much information to absorb and, uh, the lighting was unforgettable, like just in the, in the space, this sort of weird half darkness that was in there. And it was just so many people. And I was so intimidated and scared and excited and. Um, in awe of everything. And so that, you know, that day, that, that night, um, changed my life, right? I mean, that's completely changed my life. And, um, I knew very little about Fugazi, but I did love Steady Died of Nothing and was getting into repeater and all those kind of records. And, um, I remember I didn't, like all the songs that Ian sang, like in reality, I thought that was actually Gee singing, and and vice versa. And so when I saw them live at that first show, I was like, "This band is so cool!" Like they just have like different the different guys singing the song, like <laughs> like it was like I was completely confused about like who did what just from listening to the records. So, um, but seeing them live was, I mean, truly mind altering, and um, I couldn't believe like the proximity that I could get to the stage and to the bands. Um, and it was just like, that was it. I mean, everything was completely changed from then on. And so the rest of the year was just me getting deeper into DC punk and other punk rock music and just sort of falling in love with bands like Grey Matter and Rites of Spring and Holy Rollers, Shutter to Think, Drawbox especially. Um, and then I went back and saw Fugazi again that fall at, at the same place sanctuary theater. And like this time I went up on stage and like sat there and watched them from the stage. And it was just, you know, again, it just changed everything for me. So um they were, you know, the most important band in my life for sure. And, um and, you know, just from a very early age had an important spot. So um uh, yeah, I've always, always loved them still do.
0: Yeah, that's, I don't think that's a venue that I ever um, got to got to go to. Um, did that close down? Uh,
1: it's, 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 um, it's still there. It, it's like, uh, it's part of a church and, you know, I think it's still there. Um, but I think, you know, as far as punk shows happening, uh, you know, a lot of the venues, you know, would just kind of come and go. Right. Um, so there were shows there during that period. And then, you know, I remember going back to see, you know, I think I saw Fugazi and Lungfish there maybe a few years later and, uh, Q and not you did play there once. Um, Uh, in the you know early 2000s it was kind of it was never a main spot but it was an important spot and it was just the perfect size and you know again for me seeing those really formative shows there um, in many ways it's almost it is like the perfect (laughs) venue because I saw perfect shows there
0: yeah I read an interview with you where you named it as your favorite unconventional DC venue yeah, um, okay, yeah, well, yeah, so <laughs> wish I that, that, wish I would have uh, gone there. I guess that escaped my attention in my in my DC years. Um, so yeah, obviously you went on to uh, to to be in bands yourself and, and be on Discord. In fact, I won't ask you to you know run down a whole list, but any particular memorable interactions with. Uh, with Ian I, mean, I w- the guys. I would run down a
1: whole list and I just don't want to bore you with, with 8,000 stories. But, you know, it's just, <laughs> they again, like sort of what was so amazing about, you know, what is still so amazing about, you know, the members of Fugazi and about Discord Records and all that stuff is just, um, it's sort of what I'd always thought, you know, punk rock was supposed to be about, which is this sort of, you know, um, dismantling of of like borders and, and barriers between you know the particip, you know all the participants in the scene between the musicians and fans and zine editors and promoters and photographers. It's like everybody was just able to mingle, and even you know Fugazi, who was this internationally well-known, successful blah blah sort of band. Um, I mean, you could just go talk to them, and it was. It was and is just so incredible. And I mean, that the very first time I ever spoke to Ian, um, was on the phone because I just looked up Discord in the white pages. Cause I wanted to, I forgot I was calling him about something like some show I'd heard about. And I, I don't know who I spoke to. It might have been Amanda Mackay. It might have been Amy Pickering or, or Cynthia Connolly or someone, but they just said like, um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll pass the message along to Ian and he'll call you back. And of course, you know, I was just like, oh, sure. Yeah, he's, Ian's going to call me. And, you know, I was, again, I was like 15. And, you know, one afternoon, like my mom is just like, oh, John, you have a phone call. And, um, and I just pick up, he's like, yep, yeah, Ian McKay. And, uh, and I was like, oh my God, it's Ian McKay. <laughs> and so I just, you know, talked to him for probably an hour on the phone just peppering him with questions like, so uh, Embrace, oh, what were you thinking when you wrote this song? And, <laughs> you know, he just really patiently um, sat with me through all that and was always supportive. He's You know, I told him I was in a band and he was just sort of like, you know, send me a demo tape, uh, keep me posted on what you're doing. And, um, you know, I mean, he he's just a top class quality person and was um, is, you know the, the way he is about our community, about our music community, it's just so genuine and, um, and so supportive. So, um, always, uh, always going to be grateful to him for that. And he was welcoming from the beginning, um, which is just all the more remarkable because it's kind of a scene, especially at that time that was famous for like not being that welcoming and for being cliquish or whatever. And that, you know, I, I rarely had that experience, um, Certainly with like people from Fugazi or anything like that, um, you know, everybody was 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 quite welcoming to me and um, and humoring, you know, I mean, they allowed me to just like I didn't know what I was talking about or what I was doing. And they just, you know, they answered my questions and, you know, supported whatever I was doing. And it was great.
0: Well, what you said about tearing down borders seems like it would be a perfect segue into the song we're discussing today, and uh, Mm -hmm. maybe I would be a better host if I actually did that, but I just, before we do that, I did want to ask you about, um, you helped put on this exhibition last year in Mount Pleasant about Fugazi. Yes. Can you just tell me a little bit about that and about your broader archival work?
1: Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I was a musician for, you know, however long, uh, 10, 15 years where I was touring pretty much all the time. And, um, but eventually kind of came to the realization that I, I, I wanted to have a career that, um, was, you know, that I could be home more often and, um, you know, thought about what would be something that would excite me in the same way that music does. And, um, and the idea of being a librarian or an, or an, archivist, um, came up from that, you know, and, and that was also punk inspired, you know, um, when Q not you was on tour, we, we would sometimes stay with Henry Rollins in Los Angeles and he would kind of give us the, you know, the tour of his archives and would, you know, show us all the, just, you know, the recordings and the photos and the flyers and all the stuff that he had saved and very meticulously, um, organized and processed and, um, that just really re- that really resonated with me as something that um I was excited by and uh, Ian Mackay was another person who who does that, and several people from the punk world have gone into um librarian to to become librarians or archivists and um so that's what I did. I went to grad school to become a librarian and an archivist, and I started working at the University of Maryland in 2013. Um, my boss there is, or was, Vin Novara, who, um, was the drummer in the Crown Hate Ruin, who were a, a Discord band. And, um, we had just known each other for a long time, and, um, he was really supportive of my, um, interests in, in bringing punk in as a performing arts subject that we, um, that we collect at Special Collections and Performing Arts, which is where I work at the University of Maryland. Um, so, you know, these last seven or eight years, I've been an archivist there at Maryland and, um, you know, we've, we've built these punk collections that get a, a ton of use from researchers. And, um, so I knew, um, that, uh, Carney Clers had done these really incredible, um, uh, infographics. He doesn't call it infographics. I, I'm forgetting the the proper uh, <laughs> title for it. Or... V- data visualizations. Sorry. And um and I you know I was just so impressed by those and was like yes this is such a brilliant way and a very fugazi esque way to like to present the story of this band. You know it's just this sort of really intelligent and unexpected way and creative way to tell their story and just, you know, or, or tell an aspect of their story. And one of the the most important aspects of their story, which is um, their ties to this community, like what they did for the city and, you know, the places they played, the, you know, the the causes that they raised money for, the musicians that they, you know, were in this, this web with, this network of people, because um, that's what this whole thing is about. That's what this subculture is about. It's about people and people being connected to each other, helping each other, working together to just do something different and to do something that matters. Um, so, you know, Carney's project was just like, yes, that is great. And Jason Hamaker, who owns the Lost Origins Gallery, where the where the, the exhibition was held, um, again, is another old friend from the DC punk scene. I've known him for over 25 years. You know, our bands played together in high school, um, et etc. et cetera. So, it just all really came together very nicely. Jason was great, super supportive, very hardworking, very dedicated to making this show um, be, you know, everything that it could be. Um, you know, we had, um, I mean, we had the support of the band. I mean, they weren't involved in it, but, um, you know, um, you know, Ian let us borrow some materials from the band's archives and from the Discord archives to, to sort of help enhance the, the show. Um, and, you know, they all came by and I think kind of, essentially i think gave it their blessing um relatively speaking and um it, but it was just a it was a great experience and something i would like to do more of um and i just thought it was a yeah a really good way to sort of tell an important aspect of that band's story
0: yeah i agree i wasn't able to be at the exhibition but i did see um carney's website and i believe i i sort of mentioned that at the beginning of this podcast how um i reached out to him actually pretty early on because he scraped a ton of data for this project from the Fugazi live series website and mm-hmm. um he he didn't really get into uh like all the, the frequency of the songs that they played live which is something that mm. i was interested in so he actually just gave me his raw data and uh let me do some uh tweaking with that so thanks again to him and i'll I'll link his project in the show notes for this episode And uh, I guess one thing by way of introducing today's song, which is Facet Squared, the first song on the album In On The Killtaker, is that this is a a top 20 live song in the Fugazi career on my Mm. list of most frequently played songs from that data set. This one is number 18. Um, so it's a it's a banger right it's a hit the guys must have liked it pretty well (laughs) Mm -hmm. so uh john what's the first thing that you'd like to say about facet squared what's our first angle that we should take here
1: well i i think i first heard it before it was out because it was one of the earliest fugazi shows that i went to i um i pretty sure i remember them playing this but it was I didn't know what it was because the album wasn't out yet, but it was, uh, and I couldn't really understand what he was saying. But like, you know, it was, it was clear that, um, you know, there, um, that, he, you know, there was a lot of passion behind the vocal performance. Um, and really the only thing I could make out from what he was saying was like, they should never touch the ground. Right. And I was just sort of like, what is, what does that mean? <laughs> like that, because I just couldn't, I didn't know any of the other context of the song. So about, you know, eight or nine months later is when In On The kill taker, the album that the song comes from, uh, actually came out, which was, I think, June, 1993. And, um, you know, that was, um, an album that I was just, you know, just so, uh, so excited for that to come out. I mean, I lined up outside of Yesterday and Today Records in Rockville, Maryland, um, that, that morning, I think just waiting for the store to open so I could go in and get the record. And, um, and then, you know, you put that record on and then it's the first song and it's, um, you know, it has this sort of, um, martial quality to it, um, to like that, you know, this, the sort of the beeping and like the staccato notes and everything. And, um, again, it was still really difficult
0: to, to tell yeah. what he
1: was saying. <laughs> it's not uh, much easier song. to
0: understand on the record.
1: <laughs> no. And so, but, you know, like, I, you know, I spent some time with those lyric sheets and, you know, I sort of took away from it that it was, this is very much a song written in the wake, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, in the wake of, of the Gulf War and, you know, of, of this sort of, um, you know, late stage Reagan Bush, um, you know, uh, type of patriotism and just, you know, how already just, you know, I mean, even as young as I was at the time when, when the Gulf War occurred, I was 13 or 14 and, and, you know, I was not particularly political, um, but I was already, it was just like, this seems wrong. And um, so hearing that song, um, you know, just a couple years later, um, it started to feel to me like that it was, yeah, like I said, like in, in the wake of that war, this idea of nationalism and, um, you know, the, the, the power of a flag, you know, the, and kind of the power for ill and, um, and, it, it, yeah, it just sort of, and it, it, it dovetailed nicely with the music because I just sort of, picture this sort of night sky and like, you know, tracers going mm-hmm. up, you know, it, you know, I, I'm not sure what your experience was with the Gulf War, if you remember anything about it, but just, you know, again, I was pretty young and I was remembering seeing on TV, you know, these like, these like tracer flares or these, these missiles or weapons or these things just flying through the night sky and you just see them on TV, just like the, the night lighting up with these, these like deadly lights. And um, I was just completely picturing that as I, as I listened to, to the, the first, you know, whatever it is, 20, 30 seconds of facet square. And then, um, and then Brendan and Joe just kick in and it's just like, bam, you know, just like, yes, you feel it. Um, and you know, people used to sort of, mo- or probably still do, would, you know, kind of try to put down Fugazi for, you know, sort of being, uh, overly righteous or whatever it was, but like, that was just such a righteous feeling that song, you know, like the, the way when the music comes in and I know that, you know, they were criticized for being self-righteous or whatever, but it was just like, yes, this is, this just all came together with that music. And, um, um, being able to hear a recorded version of like a studio version of it, um, I could make out a little more clearly what Ian was saying. And, um, the second verse, sort of, you know, and and you probably have thoughts on this song too that I'd like to hear. Yeah. But um, you know, um, the second verse of the song sort of felt like a little um, uh, like a, a little incongruent almost with the, the with the beginning of the song. Like the first minute or two of the song, as to me, seems like this um, you know, response to American militarism at the start of the '90s, and then the second verse is kind of like, is this like, is this about like Generation X, like? slackers you know yeah, like yeah the second um, verse
0: uh, by which you mean irony is the refuge etc yes yeah that's interesting right it, it first appears to be certainly a song about nationalism but yeah that's that verse right irony is the refuge of the educated always complaining but they never quit cools eternal but it's always dated so then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're like is this actually a song about scenes like music scenes and and uh, uh tribalism within within that um Mm -hmm. and i'm sure the answer is maybe that it's both but um
1: right i do not know if it was a critique of you know of his peers uh, you know uh, at the time that like um that there that there was too much maybe like that he felt that there was too much of um a passive response to you know after an entire decade of the 80s you know where you know there's all this complaining about reagan and all this you know protesting within music and then the gulf war comes along and i i don't i don't I'm not sure if this is what he was saying, but just that, um, that the protest response to that was not as strong as you might have thought, you know, um, and, so, you know, so I'm extrapolating here, so I, I don't really know, but, um, just, uh, that verse sort of seemed, yeah, like a little incongruent to me with the other stuff, unless he's sort of criticizing, um, the, this sort of, uh, studied ennui of his peers, which, um, <laughs> was certainly, uh, yeah a reality you know i mean like i mean we all know about the cliches of generation x um and so and slackers and and whatnot um and irony just this suffocating irony you know through the 90s with that generation so um i don't know if he's referring to that too but it just seemed a little uh uh you know not totally in step with um uh with uh with the other stuff that he was talking about in that song
0: I guess this might be a good uh, chance for me to quote a little bit from Joe Gross's book on uh, "In on the Kill Taker" from the Thirty Three and a Third series. Um, you know, I'm mm-hmm. really tempted to like just read the whole chapter right on the air, but uh, I won't do that. I'll encourage everybody again to to buy Joe Gross's book because it's it's great. But just uh, Ian Mackay's comments on that particular stanza. Uh, Quote, I feel like part of the Reagan right-wing revolution was to reconfigure language, and ironic detachment was part of that. I hate irony, I just never liked it. An ironic view meant super smart people didn't take a stand or commit to anything, they just traffic in irony. You would hear people complain about things, but never leave the situation or try to do anything about it. And at the time, I felt that people were thinking old things were cool, and that's what's happening now... And that what's happening now is not cool because the past is safe. Uh, Sylvia Plath can't do anything to you, you know, mm-hmm. end quote. So yeah, there's, okay. there's definitely something to that. I mean, and when it comes out in a, a line like cool's eternal, but it's always dated. That's one of these really interesting lines in music that you come across where it's like written as a truism. And then you're like that. That's interesting. Is that true? Um, And, and makes you think about it. Like, yeah. I, I was thinking, if you play word association, what comes to your mind when you think of cool? Like, what image pops into your mind?
1: Um, I, I do think of, you know, um, icons of cool that were sort of minted in the 1950s, right? You know, like um, yeah. James Dean and, you know, the Beats and um, stuff like that. And there is a detachment to cool. I mean, just in the word itself. And, you know, you think of, you know, Chet Baker and this kind of, um, and cool jazz and, you know... Uh, um there is a detachment to cool, and, um, and I, and you know, I see why Ian would, um, sort of rebel ag- against that. I mean, that's that, you know, ironic detachment is certainly not his thing. I mean, he has always been, you know, um, just like a, a very direct, uh, storyteller, um, of, you know, about what he's, what he's talking about. Um, and, you know, my, take on him is that it's just sort of like, there's no time for this. You know, it's just like, I don't have time to mess around with, um, you know, with something like irony and just like, uh, what do you think? You know, m- maybe I mean this, maybe I mean that, I don't know, um, right. because it is, it is safe. I mean, there is, uh, you know, safety in that sort of, um, in, in irony and just sort of being sarcastic about things. And, and it's tiresome. Um, and I, you know, I've always appreciated that, I think about, about Ian um and that you don't really get that. So even though maybe cool's eternal but it's always dated um you know uh, perhaps is just his opinion. Um it certainly it certainly makes sense coming from him. I mean that is that is a a statement of truth um uh, for 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 Ian Mackay. that that's for sure. Um and and that and it resonates with with me as well. Yeah. Um,
0: and and like it's um I well first of all I agree you know, if, if I think of the word cool, what comes to my mind is like something like an amalgam of, yeah, James Dean and Johnny Ramone or something, you know, blue jeans, leather jacket, plain white t-shirt, uh, sunglasses, electric guitar, if you can get it, you know, just, just stuff like that. And it's um, I like, I think one thing that that uh, invokes a little bit is the how how cool is associated with youth so much. I mean, plain white t-shirt. It's like super cool if you're young and in shape, nothing looks better. If you're sort of old and out of shape, nothing looks worse. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and um and that it's sort of like when I think of Ian Mackay, like in, in particular, he's almost he as he as he's aged, he almost never looks different, just like on a on a sort of <laughs> superficial level. He's he's like always just worn the same casual, you know, shorts, shirt, a hat sometimes. Uh and it's, it's, it's like always him throughout the ages. Um, so his, his particular brand of cool seems to be eternal. Right. Um, that, that was something
1: that was happening in, in the DC scene at the time, you know, I, I think just from my understanding of it was this sort of, um, you know, what, I guess what's called the young idea. So, you know, I, I interviewed Jen Smith, uh, last year, I think it was, um, for, uh, again, as part of my job, um, uh, I've I I created an oral history series um, of fanzine creators from the Washington D.C. area, going back to the mid '70s up through the present. And um, Jen Smith uh, is a musician and um, you know a, a fanzine creator and um, is the you know is is credited with inspiring um, you know the the name of Riot Girl and. Um, and so I was you know she was there in DC at the time and um um she was sort of saying she never really felt that comfortable with this sort of cult of youth that was going on um and I don't want to speak for her but this is my interpretation of you know what she told me but um that she you know was sort of a little put off by the cult of youth that was going on in DC at that time you know um And again, this is not what she said, but just sort of my interpretation was, um, you know, with, you know, you listen to Nation of Ulysses records and, you know, this is sort of like, uh, I'm 18 forever sort of element to that, which, you know, when I was that age, you know, it it was just kind of like, yeah. Um, but now like as, as, as an older adult, it's kind of like, eh, I don't know. I wouldn't want to be 18 forever. I, um, I know a lot more now. Um, but like, I understand, you know, what, um, you know, what, what they were, what they were going for, but, um, you know, like as, as Jen put it, you know, essentially, and I guess I'm paraphrasing, but just she's like, she's like, I'm in this to like get old, you know, like I'm involved in punk, like for life. You know, this isn't about trying to hold on to, um, you know, the, you know, the energy of my life when I was 18. It was just sort of like, this is me, like for good. And, um, and, you know, when she said that, that was just like, yes, I, like I, I, you know, I, I, Again, that resonates with me, um, and that that was happening in in DC in the early nineties of this kind of um, cult of youth or or whatever it was, and and perhaps that's what Ian is responding to in this lyric of just um, you know there there was a lot of, of throwback to fifties and sixties ideas of cool and icons of cool at that point, and um, and you know he might have just been reacting to it, but you know I, I don't really like you know you know uh, speaking for him or t- attempting to speak for him but that's sort of again my uh, interpretation or assessment of what was going on
0: yeah this um this tendency of people to I-, I don't know just go back to the past for things they feel comfortable with that definitely resonates both with talking about coolness and <laughs> talking about The way nations conduct themselves on the global stage right it's like Mm -hmm. uh, i mean as as the famous saying goes we're we're always fighting the last war um Mm -hmm. uh I, i don't know to what extent that really um applies to the gulf war and and the gulf war's influence on this song to answer your question i was I was in elementary school, I think when that was going on, and all I really remember about it, other than vague memories of seeing stuff on the news was uh they had our class write letters to i think a specific soldier who was deployed um mm-hmm. <laughs> just like so silly to think of now, like what does an elementary schooler have to say to <laughs> to a deployed soldier uh in in Kuwait or whatever um but yeah that it's 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 a very um it's a very interesting observation you made about the the connection between the imagery of the things you saw on TV and the tracer bullets with the, the sonic qualities of this song. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I assumed that was what they were trying to emulate with that. This is sort of like, um, and you know, they might say like, "Mm, no, we were just kind of making, you know, interesting noises, but, um, that's just, I projected that meaning onto, onto their music. And, um, and it just was so cinematic. I mean, that album in, in general is so cinematic in my opinion. Um, and, you know, there's just, uh, and not even just in like the lyrical references. And I don't want to like be getting into other episodes you're going to do, uh, you know, on Walking Syndrome or Cassavetes or whatever, but even like musically, like, um, like Sweet and Low or, or whatever on that record. Um, there's just a very sort of, uh, like, uh, cinematic quality to me, to that record, more than any of the other ones they did. Even even the soundtrack to Instrument, I, c- I would consider yeah. In On The Killtaker a more, like, sort of cinematic-sounding record.
0: That's interesting you say that. Um, on I interviewed Ted Nicely recently for some bonus episodes, and talking about this song in particular... He was—he was just telling a story about how he was envisioning this as like an over-the-top sort of music video, and mm-hmm. saying this to the just to kind of get under the Fugazi guys' skin, like <laughs> just to make it a real cheesy rock star moment. But yeah, I know what you mean. Like cinematically, it would really lend itself to that. Um, it's uh, there's there's a lot of cool stuff about it. How it sort of gradually fades in, and um, it's and very dramatic. Yeah, and Ian's so. I, what he's doing is uh, using his toggle switch on his uh, guitar yes. while it's feeding back to to have this like staccato morse code like thing but something i like about that is after it fades in it it makes use of like stereo panning and not like a simple brainless kind of like left to right left to right in uh, in regular increments panning it's it sort of pans from your left like across to the right then to the middle, but it doesn't go back to the left. It sort of goes back to the right again. It's <laughs> it's sort of organic feeling, um, it, as if somebody's just sort of riding the 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 pan slider or whatever, and <laughs> making it sound just just right, just interesting, um, not cheesy, but uh, I don't know, giving it some space this, like that cinematically.
1: Yeah, there's I mean, thought went into all those little details. Um, um, I was also thinking about this song how. Um, it also felt like a, a companion piece in a way to keep your eyes open, KYEO, the last song on Steady Diet. And, you know, which, so it's sort of like, you know, Steady Diet ends and it kind of, um, segues almost into this song. Like, again, that idea of, you know, KYEO, keep your eyes open, you know, another, uh, sort of Gulf War song, um, to me, um, of, you know, just this feeling of like being of being out there in 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 battle, like the, the battle is not occurring, but like you're waiting for it, you you know, you're waiting for the enemy to, to hit and just that fear that, you know, that soldiers would be feeling and um that is sort of in the air to me in the same way at the beginning of facet squared, it's sort of like, um you know, the way it fades in kind of silently, like I can just sort of just kind of picture someone sort of pricking up their ears. It's like, what's that? Like you just start to detect the sound and then, you know, Gee's guitar again with that kind of staccato guitar note. And then like, bam, like the bombs drop with the rhythm section going in and like, not to get too, you know, purple with the, <laughs> the stuff here, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like, again, it's just, it, it just feels like a movie to me.
0: Yeah. That's so, that's interesting. Also when, when Ian's guitar comes in after Guy's amazing, like intro, main riff right his big riff ian's guitar comes in sort of lower in the mix but it's like a it's almost like a wall of fuzz it sounds like and Mm -hmm. it's almost as if in a situation where just loud things are happening all around you and your ears are just sort of assaulted by this constant low-level hum like even Mm -hmm. after the impact of of bombs or whatever not to put too fine a point on it uh you get this sort of like echoing in your ears ringing in your ears from something hugely loud that has just happened Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. yeah there are a lot of parallels there wow
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i'm definitely yeah i mean again i don't know for sure like what the band you know says or thinks or i mean if if anything i think they always seem to kind of just say like hey you know like we like leaving something open to interpretation about our our songs and our lyrics and if like you know, if this is what you hear, then then that's what the song means to you. Um, and I like that about you know certain yeah. kind of lyric, like about lyrics that 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 are open for interpretation. I mean, it can be frustrating sometimes as a listener, but um, to, but it's also um, that's sort of one of the um, that's a fun thing about music, and that's also like the you know the a communal aspect of the song. I mean, you know, it's like you have a, you know this connection to the music because. Um, you can kind of interpret the lyrics however you want and um and so, yeah, so clearly, I've interpreted this song in a certain way, you know for from when I first started listening to it, just very much a song in the in the wake of the Gulf war,
0: yeah, that's um I guess one more parallel that just came to mind as you were talking is in in that. Intro when the drums and bass kick in, it's it's one of those parts where Brendan's really sort of wailing on the the bell that he has, which you know alarm mm-hmm. bells mm-hmm. something. I don't right. know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's definitely a thing that you could uh, take to uh, take to great lengths. Yes. Uh, uh, as far as companion piece songs, I always thought of this as a companion piece song to turn over. Turnover. Turnover. Mm-hmm being the first song on repeater and also the way it begins this this sort of fading in of of like feedbacky kind of notes and then bass and drums come in together it resonated like that for me as a song that's almost like turnover but turn up the kick ass knob to 11 and and like <laughs> really do it this time
1: <laughs> but and and sort of in the same like i i guess turnover was just kind of about like um was it also, it was, you know, Langer rises reaching, right? You know, to turn off the alarm, like also this sort of um, apathy, you know, and I don't know if that's, if there's referring to just like a personal apathy or like, you know, apathy about social issues or or war or whatever. But um, yes, I think, I think there are parallels with,
0: with turnover and uh, facet squared. Yeah. I, I think we should definitely mention at some point the, I mean, the first lyrics to the song and the album, really interesting, right? Pride no longer has definition. Everybody mm-hmm. wears it. It always fits. That That's one of those lines that just sort of rings, in, in my head at least, because I remember from a pretty early age being a little confused by the word pride. Like, it's one of the mm-hmm. most double-edged words in the English language, right? As far as sometimes it is a good thing and sometimes it is bad. And it's hard to understand when you're coming to grips with uh, <laughs> concepts like that, right? It's like mm-hmm. pride is one of the seven deadly sins. Pride goeth before a fall, et cetera, et cetera. But then your parents are always saying, well, I'm, I'm proud of you. You should be proud of right. this. Uh, you know, and of course. Take pride they, in your country. Yes, of course, all the nationalistic, jingoistic uh, right. pride things. Um, so, so, yeah, and, it, and it's, of course, a word that ties so strongly into this, like a song about about nationalism and uh if if you will a song about cool and and maybe if if it is about that about your music scenes um mm-hmm. it's it's um a a parallel that you could draw between those is you know i always think when about the notions of like people talking about nationalism versus globalism or or interna- internationalism it's like um well the thing is i mean if you're going to be black and white about it and say those are the the two points of view you can have like you think about what are the logical endpoints of these worldviews, and it's like, well, the logical endpoint of sort of globalism, internationalism, that sort of makes sense to me. You can envision a utopian world where everyone has a say and works together toward the betterment of the uh, of the species, et cetera, et cetera. But like, what's the logical endpoint of nationalism? Like, why does it make sense to uh, retract within our borders? and worry about America first, why does that make more sense than, you know, each state being the priority, uh, and having them govern themselves, or regions of the country, uh, and why does that in turn make more sense than, yeah, and you get back to, you know, being a humanity in small tribes again, you know, th- there are so few nations on earth that, like, share one culture, one language in even they're all, they're always all these divisions. Um, So in what way, in what way does nationalism make sense kind of? And I uh, like, that's a thing that if you, if you want to say the song is about cool and music also that you can bring over to that, like to what, to what degree does it make sense to separate these things and gatekeep your particular scene? You know, as, as long as you sort of, as you sort of Share a general punk ethos of collective action and um, and being against the forces of of repression, uh, fascism, et etc.
1: yeah, I mean power, superiority, tribalism these things appeal to some people you know and um, and it's just like it seems like you know we, it's so hard to get away from um, for so many people and um, obviously that's something we're dealing with now in in the united states and and even elsewhere um and it's just there's this element that almost like does, is this just human nature or is this you know uh it's i mean i i can't explain it um i don't know why why that is is so much more uh preferable for some people um but it it seems it seems to be um and yeah, I mean, like, yeah, pride no longer has definition. Everybody wears it. It always fits. I mean, it's like the concept of, of pride and patriotism and nationalism and like real America, you know, quote unquote. Um, you know, the, it's so flexible, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a really malleable concept and you can really just sort of, uh, shape it to fit. You, however, you know, it can mean anything you want, and people twist it to mean anything that, you know, real America is this. And, um, you know, this is how you show pride in America. Um, to criticize anything about America means you hate America. Right. As opposed to, actually, I love America. I love America, um, so much that I expect more from it and that I want to make this a better place. I mean, like, isn't that what, you know, isn't that what we're talking about here about like making this country a better place, a more fair place, a more just place for everyone. I mean, who doesn't want that? Um, but I think there are people who feel like, well, I don't want that if that's going to get in the way of me getting mine. And, um, and that's what we're running into. But, um, yeah, that, that, it's it's um, I, I don't know if that's what he means with, you know, pride no longer has definition. Everybody wears it. It always fits. But that's that's just kind of how I take it is this sort of, you know, this very frank observation of the um, sort of the like the malleability and the phoniness of um, these concepts of of, you know, of pr- American pride and, and and whatever. It's 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 so phony.
0: Yeah. The the way in which everybody wears pride it's, you know, just the just the idea that so many people nowadays claim pride in negative qualities, basically, like people saying like, yeah, I'm I'm a bigot and I'm proud. Um, it's like as if slapping the word proud on something uh, makes it OK. It's like, oh, well, I know I no longer right. have to that explain myself. It. I'm proud of this <laughs> yeah. quality about myself. Right. Uh, so there that's right. the end of the argument. Um, right
1: but that is that is a an, an element of of this movement this negative movement in our country is this sort of like um the this concept of doubling down um you know it's like you know you saying something awful and then just and and not apologizing and you know and that somehow is like that's real that's real talk you know and um it's uh it's it's just something that like, we got to figure out how to how to improve this because it's um it's it's not it's making America worse
0: (laughs) yeah and in that way comparing it to today's situation it seems like a song that's so prescient like so many Fugazi songs are in the second stanza too because like uh, so to quote from like one more time from Joe Gross's book about the second stanza strength is the bait that keeps us so busy if it's perforated then I'll tear it to bits all sense lost in the frenzy so Ian says about that one uh, I wrestled with that lyric at one point uh, the line was "strength is the chum," instead of the bait. I like the stuff, mm-hmm. uh, like the stuff you bait sharks with. I wanted to get mm-hmm. across the idea that part of the rationalization for violence is just to be strong, with nothing but the idea of strength behind it, no other reason. And anything that is weak that shows weakness is just destroyed in the chaos. Um, end quote. So that's like, <laughs> that's so relevant to our situation. You know, just the idea of strength with nothing behind it seems like the Like it could be the campaign slogan for Donald Trump. Like it's you think about the, um, you know, the Barack Obama famous hope poster. Like Mm -hmm. I I would it wouldn't surprise me at all to see one of Trump that just says strength underneath it. Right. That's like I I bet if I worked for his campaign and I pitched him that he would be like, I love it. Let's do it. Just strength. (laughs) One word. That's the campaign. Right. Because it's like it's the only thing he wants to project um no no questioning anything no um no brooking any kind of not only disloyalty but disagreements it's just strength which means do what I say and that's an end to it
1: yep yeah i mean that's he he seems desperate to convey that as as an attribute of his um so yes certainly that's something that they really yeah try very very hard to get across as if that as if that was as if that is what is actually at the core of this rather than, uh, fear. But, um, but anyway,
0: yeah, it's, uh, it's only just now looking at the lyrics that I've noticed the the first word of, of each of the first three stanzas is, is pride, strength, irony, like just sort of Ian has a lot of ideas about these, uh, general <laughs> concepts that he wants to get across in this song and, mm-hmm. uh, sort of ties it all together in a, in a nice way. Um, and it, uh, speaking of tying it up, it brings us to what the chorus is about. They should never touch the ground. It's it's sort of one of those songs where, uh, I mean, we've you and I have listened to this song so many times that uh, we probably almost never pay attention, but it's one of those songs where it's talking about something throughout and you never realize what that thing is until the very end, which is that uh, they should never touch the ground refers to flags. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why flags are such ugly things. They should never touch the ground, um, which Ian is on record talking about like that's when he was in uh, Boy Scouts, I believe that, uh, you know, he's taught that you're not supposed to let the flag touch the ground because right. the ground uh, gets the flag dirty, it soils it, and the flag is something to be honored. But his point of view is that, in fact, the ground is the thing that's honorable, um, the, 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 the world we live in and share... Uh, is what has you know strength and honor, but flags and borders, those are the ugly things. Uh those right. are the things that bring dishonor to the ground, so that's why flags should never touch the ground, which is a really nice turnabout. Yeah. It is
1: it is well put. Um it also evoked for me that idea of like they should never touch the ground. Um was also just sort of like boots on the ground as far as um uh, military and soldiers of sort of, you know, landing as invaders on a place, again, um, you know, again, projecting my um, Gulf War thing onto the song, just about, you know, um, you know, going to another country uh, to, to, to fight. Um, I wasn't sure if that was sort of a, a double meaning that
0: um, possibly may have been intended. Um, I don't know, but it, it, I did think of that. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that if you're listening to the song for the first time, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that came to mind. I don't like again, I don't remember the first Gulf War enough to like is that is that a phrase that was in common parlance at the time? Um I I don't even remember. I certainly have heard it a lot um you know in the in the more modern uh George W Bush era uh Yeah, I guess wars. I don't know. I, I
1: I've always heard it, but uh, it's possible that that is a a newer one but just that sort of idea of like well we'll have boots on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just me- meaning, you know, we're going to have a presence on this place, you know, in this in this other place. Um um you know, some sort of like a landing essentially. Um and yeah, I'm not sure if that's what he meant or not, but it did, it did, it evoked that for me.
0: Uh I probably shouldn't let this moment pass lest I forget wi- without pointing out that the title of the song Facet Squared, uh, of some uh, confusion to people, but uh, so it comes from the line, uh, flags are such ugly things. I guess as a working title, uh, they uh, acronymized that into F-A-S-U-T and just sort of mm-hmm. called it Facet, and then mm-hmm. just sort of evolved into the, the title that it has uh, on the record, Facet Squared. So that said i w- I wanted to ask you uh, because i I really like the sentiment of this song and the idea of flags being such ugly things and and such um, but like I have to confess I sort of like flags a lot just simply from a uh, from like a visual and and design standpoint um certainly yeah it's um i if people who have never really looked into that side of things uh, I'd I'd like to put a link in the show notes to um, a TED talk from Roman Mars. Um, you familiar with Roman Mars and his uh, his podcasts, Ninety Nine Percent Invisible? I have uh,
1: heard of, but I'm not really familiar.
0: Yeah, he's it's it's a great podcast just about design, and I guess the title of it, Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, refers to things that we don't even notice most of the time. Uh, we just sort of take for granted, but they are in fact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thought thought about a lot, and a lot of thought goes into making them. Um, but he, oh, and he by the way, when this podcast started, my podcast, he tweeted about it, which I was very flattered by. And Roman, if you're still uh, a listener, uh, feel free to come on sometime. But uh, he <laughs> did this great TED talk about vexillology, which is the study and of flags and how they're created uh, and mm. how they're sort of designed. Uh, the rules of them, flags that are excellent uh, and that people uh, can really use as a standard and and follow and flags that break the rules and are just sort of terrible but it it's an area of study that's like it sort of speaks to me because you can get super nerdy into it right because it's closely related related to heraldry which is like the the study of coats of arms and stuff like that Mm. it's like the sort of thing that like there's the kind of nerd who goes to the renaissance fair and is like interested in the swords and and whatnot and then there's the kind of nerd who's like well I'm, i'm super interested in the the design of of people's uh coats of arms and things like that there's also um blazonry which is a kind of quasi language that's like a combination of middle english and french which is how coats of arms and flags are officially described so uh for example listeners who are um familiar with the uh, Washington D.C. flag, which is actually the George Washington's like family arms. Um, y- you would s- you would say to describe what that flag is: argent two bars gules in chief, three mullets of the second, which is just translated to normal English, which means on a silver or white field, there are two red horizontal bars, and above them, three stars of the second color that I just mentioned. So, uh, yeah, basically flags you can get real deep into it and i think there's a uh, a lot to admire about fa- that i mean it's f- it's fascinating
1: <laughs> and you know yeah. and, and just the 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 meaning that that people again just sort of uh project onto on onto these things and um yeah this idea that like uh, if you drop the if you drop the flag on the ground that it, you know that it's ruined um is uh so arbitrary <laughs> really um you know and and i don't i, I don't know if that comes from um you know, from battle essentially, was that, you know, the idea was that, you know, when they were you know, whoever was holding the flag in a battle, it was like you were never to let that flag um hit the ground, you know, uh obviously from an honor standpoint, but even from a practical standpoint of um of the soldiers not knowing, you know, who was where and whatnot. And so I don't know if that those are the roots of that um this veneration of of, you know, a cloth. Uh, you know, um, I don't know, but, um, but I've, I've, I've wondered if that was where that comes from.
0: Well, and it speaks to the beguiling power of a flag. Um, and you know, there's, there's something, well, there's something to be admired in it. And there's also, it also shows you how dangerous it can be. Like, I mean, in that Ted talk I mentioned, he points out that in Chicago, right? Another very famous flag, um, police officers in Chicago, at their funerals they often like their coffin would be draped in a chicago flag like that is not mm-hmm. something that happens in a lot of cities and it's i i think we can solely attribute it to the fact that it's a good flag um and uh, and it but in that flag. same in that same way though uh the idea that it can it can be waved and and inspire you to to kill your fellow man over uh you know sort of just questionable motives of of um geopolitical dominance um that that's like definitely the downside of it, yeah, i mean pride in you know
1: where you're from i mean that's a big deal for for lots of people i mean i think i mean just speaking of q and i u the band that I was in, you know one of our first t shirts and one that like still gets made um you know it's just it's just the name of our band on a red shirt and then it's the d c flag underneath it just flipped upside down yeah um and that's and that's it and that was a big deal to us at the time of just like you know we are from DC like this like the the you know the regional aspect of of that there was so much pride in that of that like we love this place we love this scene that we're part of we love these people and like we're going to like go out there and evangelize like on behalf of this place and so being from DC was you know so much a part of our identity and and that was influenced by Nation of Ulysses and you know who who you know made a DC flag you know part of their you know stage set at least you know in photos that I had seen of them and you know we were just heavily influenced by them um but um you know I I can I can understand you know the the, the sort of the, the intense pride that a flag can represent that those those seemingly random symbols can represent because you know it's it's a place you love it's people you love it's values that you ostensibly uh that, that you love um i get it um
0: but it can be destructive i get it i have a tattoo of the dc flag it's um there you go it it's yeah there's something to it that i really love but yeah th- would would you would you kill for it would you fight and die for it that's that's the question <laughs> um yeah, yeah it's a thorny issue, and it's, it's like, if nothing else, it's really great to think about in, in the way that Ian McKay, uh puts it forth in this song. It's a head-scratcher, it's a thinker, um, and it, it makes you meditate in the way that a lot of good Fugazi songs do.
1: Right, I mean, that's the idea. It's just sort of to challenge this notion that is accepted by so many. To, it's like, just think about it, you know, uh, and that's, that's just sort of what I take away from this.
0: Before we move on to, to sort of like talking about how we feel about the song, ultimately, I wanted to mention live versions of this song. Uh, usually I try to, you know, run down, look at some live performances, see if there are any differences in how the band did it live. Um, this one, not not much. It was usually super faithful to the record. The only main difference being that um, Guy would usually throw some extra notes into the intro, so it's not rhythmically exactly the same. Um, mm-hmm. otherwise they, they played it very faithful to the record um, and who can blame them really it's a <laughs> I think they, yeah. they sort of got it right the first time with that one um, I also like to look up if any bands have done covers of it can't really find many surprisingly um, this, is, this is the kind of song that if I were in the right kind of band I'd love to do a cover the only actually v- v- one that I could find is by a band called Project 86 which is uh, apparently like a Christian new metal band but Actually did a pretty good job, so um, yeah i'll I'll put that link in uh, in the notes. check it out. I also went to uh, the alphabetical fugazi social media accounts, asked listeners as I do sometimes if they have any comments about this song. sometimes I do that and don't really get much of a response. Um, some people don't really feel strongly about a lot of songs, but for this one, tons of comments um, i guess i'll I'll just read brief selection of them off i guess i'll say in general people seem to really love this one so um your friend and mine scott Stenger, commented on <laughs> this you guys were in a band together called Corm i understand that's right he says 27 years later and the toggle switch slash feedback intro still gives me goosebumps yeah bob henry says the way that song builds and explodes like an overfilled water balloon is great Um, I like this one from Kevin Haley. He says, I was thinking about it earlier today, driving through the rural south. Uh, This brought to mind a memory from college. I used to make really crappy paintings and then layer type over with favorite song lyrics and then post them on our dorm dorm room door, thinking that I was being artsy. One time I did it with the ugly flags lyric and like always put it on display, completely forgetting that my native Hawaiian roommate had just that week hung his pre-colonial Hawaii flag over his bed. Thinking I was being a complete passive-aggressive ass, he was super apologetic and asked if I wanted him to take it down. And oh, how I was so utterly mortified. I was not very committed to excellence. (laughs) Thanks for that story, Kevin. Pete Fraser says, I have a distinct and specific memory of going and buying this on CD, putting it into my Discman outside the shop, and that intro just blowing my mind. The opening verse guitars, too. I just didn't know what was happening and had never heard anyone do those things using guitars before. Blew my mind. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm always saying about Fugazi, it's like they, they did sort of things with guitars that um, may, may not be like the most complex music anyone's ever made, but uh, different enough that a typical guitar player might be like, what what exactly are they doing? What's going on? And uh, finally, the, the producer of this album, Ted Nicely, chimed in also said, a really incredible musical moment. The whole track gives me goosebumps. My two cents, it doesn't get much better. So, uh, as for you, John Davis, let's talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? And if you could, out of the whole Fugazi catalog, from one star to five stars, just in that context, do you think you could give a rating to this song and uh, say how much you like it? It, It's up there. Um, This album is my favorite Fugazi album, Um, and
1: so songs on this album that like even sort of challenged my ideas at the time of like what i was willing to to like to to listen to like uh, i think it's what 23 beats off which has sort of like the several minutes of this like um a feedback at the end of it again quite cinematic i think um that you know initially it was sort of like i can't i can't listen to this um but um but really, at this point, every song on that album is is totally perfect to me. Uh, I suppose if I had to give it a star rating, I would give it a four because, um, and I'm reserving five for my most favorite Fugazi songs, um, which I would say would be like Public Witness Program or um, uh, Kyo is another one that um, is just uh, you know is is an all time favorite. Um, you know, Repeater etc but so this one i i, I give <laughs> i give it four out of five um but it's uh it is yeah the the one that one of the ones that really does mean the most to me because like i said it's like it's the introduction to this album it's the introduction to my favorite fugazi album the one that's most important to me the one i have like the strongest memories um associated with you know i mean i was just at at just the right age when this record came out um in my life, you know, for for this album. And uh, it's so much more than just a collection of songs, you know, it's a collection of everything going on in my life around this album. So it's all one package, you know, it's all tied together. Um, So yeah, I guess a a, a four, I suppose, but it's just like lyrically powerful. Like the, the, the vocal performance from Ian is is just amazing. You know, it's just um, so forceful. It's sort of like, he's just like, this like giant polar bear, like, uh, you know, <laughs> like just sort of like, whoa, get out of the way. um You know, and it's just, um you know, it's, it's completely genuine, um which is, which is them. I mean, it was just, they're, they're such a genuine group of people and that comes out in, in their music.
0: Yeah. I agree with everything you said. And like, in particular Ian's vocal performance, like on one hand, amazing. On the other hand, it's maybe the only thing I can find fault with in this song is that it's like sort of incomprehensible a lot of the time, indecipherable. yes. yeah. Ian MacKay is interesting. Like his voice is, he's kind of like a. I want to, I want to, I want to use the word like mushmouthed. Like, and you can hear it when he talks too. It's this. It's very hard to describe, but it, it's so singular. And, I mean, it's the kind of thing that, like, if if he were being classically trained in oratory, like, it would probably be considered a negative. Um, but as it is, it's such an interesting—it it makes his voice very distinctive. And usually I think that works to his advantage. I guess maybe here it just makes things a little indistinct. Um, it reminds me a little bit of—what's uh, that—you remember the—who was the band in the Decline of Western Civilization? Um I'm totally blanking on this.
1: Um, uh, Black flag X, uh, you know. Oh no, it was um. Uh, germs.
0: Yeah, the germs, right? And and like some of those songs, like Darby Crash is, uh, <laughs> is, <laughs> yeah, it's like it has subtitles under, and it, it's like you, he's he's like barely singing the words. Um, yeah, totally. So, yeah, it's not like that, but it reminds me of a little. But, however, like that said, it's not enough to bring it down from being five stars for me, honestly. I think this right. is one of my most favorites. Uh, so this is this is in that echelon for me. Um, now, yeah, doesn't that vocal song.
1: performance, though, communicate to you anyway, though? Like, the idea is it's like, yes, we're, we are losing some of the specifics of of the lyrics in, in his vocal performance. And you're right. I mean, this is kind of this just what, like the shout like this really intense shouting that um that he's doing in it but um i don't know like i mean it, it, it can it's very much conveyed um you know sentiments that i i do think st- still passed along what he was trying to to do but yes the, the lyrics in this are so good and so sort of thought-provoking that um it is a little bit of a shame to to lose them, uh, except for like you know, they should never touch the ground. That that comes through. Also, the you know, uh, irony is the refuge of the educated and cool's eternal, but it's always dated. Those those break through as well. But that um, that whole last verse, uh, like it's not worth the investment, keeps us tied up in all these strings. Like I had no idea what he, what he was saying, or that's why flags are such ugly things. I didn't I didn't know that's what he was saying uh, until I read the lyrics.
0: I'm I'm glad they're one of these bands that um did include lyrics like that, uh, just for exactly that purpose. Cause yeah, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that could otherwise get lost. Why don't we talk about plugs? Or th- is there any place you want listeners to be able to reach you? Do you have any projects that you're working on or, uh, anything like that that you'd like to plug and I can, uh, give links to whatever you have in the show notes. Uh, well, uh, at Special Collections and Performing Arts at the University of Maryland,
1: where um, I'm interim curator right now, um, we do have an Instagram page for um, for our punk collections. I mean, we have thousands of, of flyers and fanzines and photographs and recordings um, and and you know and whatnot in our collections. And you know we want to we want to get them out there so people can see them. So uh, I've been I've been posting them on Instagram. So that's uh, it's at UMD Punk Collections if uh, you want to look at that. And as for me personally, um, um, I've just I haven't been playing music much the last few years. I've just been instead of putting my time into writing. Um, and so I recently uh, wrote an article for the Punk and Post Punk uh, Academic Journal out of the UK. Um, on some of the like the early years of of DC punk and some of the early record labels like Limp Records um and just kind of did a little history of that and uh have a book chapter coming out next year uh in a book called uh, Global Punk Volume 2 I think um where I'm talking about the DC punk scene in the 2010s which um was a bit of a reaction to um there's been so much focus on the distant past in the DC scene in, in the last few years, and, you know, which I've been involved in, too. I mean, I'm an archivist who is archiving the DC scene going back to the 70s, but, you know, with all the the documentaries and the books and, and you know, exhibitions that have gone on, they tend to focus on the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and um, I thought the 2010s was a really exciting time. In the DC punk scene, there are just so many great bands um, and, you know, interesting new record labels and people doing zines and just incredible photographers and um, really hardworking promoters and, um, you know, etc. So I, I wrote this book chapter um, on DC in the 2010s, and that's going to come out. Uh, I think next spring. And then the big project I'm working on is a history of DC Punk fanzines um, from the 70s into the 21st century. And um, uh, that's a book that's going to be published by Georgetown University Press. I I don't know when it's coming out, but I, I think it's going to be finished um, next year. And uh, so my hope would be sometime early 2022. I don't know. But uh, that's my big project right now. And, and I really am really loving writing um, writing books and writing articles and, and chapters and stuff. And I have a thousand book ideas that I just, I very desperately want to get into. So um am trying to finish what I'm working on now and, and move on to write about more DC stuff, but also other kinds of music that I'm really into like, like power pop and, and and things like that. So,
0: That's awesome. Well, listeners check that out. You know, the cyclical nature of things, maybe in 20 years, there'll be archivists, uh, Archiving the uh, all the DC punk fan podcasts that of the 2020s and so on. So uh, I hope so. Yeah. So hi everybody from the future. What's up? <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks so much, John, for your participation. Uh, great of to course. talk to you. As for me, listeners, you can reach me as always at fugazi a to z at gmail.com and you can join the Facebook group, the Alphabetical Fugazi, and say what you will about. Today's song, just in case there's something we didn't cover, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Fell Destroyed. Until then, keep your eyes open.